Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Liskov. And with me today, back again for another West Wing episode, is Joe Reed, uh, host of This Had Oscar Buzz, managing editor at theprimetimer.com. He's here to talk about the White House Pro-Am. And my first question to you is this. Do you yes. know why the hell this episode is called The White House Pro-Am? I, I literally, I, I jotted that down too. To my best guess, this is one of the more, it's not even that it's an esoteric title. It's just one of those that like, if it were in Latin, we could understand it. Because it was just like, it's Aaron Sorkin, he likes to do Latin right. titles, whatever. Right. Post hoc ergo propter hoc, sure. Sure, sure. No, my guess is because one of the 
things when Sam and Abby have their little meeting is mm-hmm. that he calls her and her office amateurish. Right. And that, like, a, the oh. idea of a pro-am being, like, a pro-am tournament is, like, professionals and amateurs. So, like, the idea uh. that, like, the conflict between the Bartlett staff and the Abbey staff mm. is professionals versus amateurs. But, like, it's a real, real tenuous connection. And, like, I really wonder at what point he came up with that and was just like, no, we're sticking with it. Like, I will hear no <laughs> other, like, whatever. Or, like, maybe yeah. it was Lawrence O'Donnell or someone like that. Like, who the hell knows? But, like, knowing Aaron Sorkin, it was probably Aaron Sorkin. It's, it was just like, I, yeah, I was just racking my brain being like, I've heard the terminology pro-am before, but I couldn't really figure out yeah. how it associated with it. Anyway. It's um, one of yeah. the least, uh, when you, it's one of the worst titles for remembering what was in the episode because... yes. You're just like, okay, this tells me nothing. This gives yeah. me absolutely nothing. And The West Wing isn't great about that. It's not like, I think the ideal are shows like Seinfeld and Friends, where they tell you exactly the, one the with, pertinent yeah, info. Yeah. Usually, yeah. I will say. Because, yeah. like, the one where Ross got high is not about Ross getting high. It's about Rachel baking a trifle with meat and peas. And, like, that's, like, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. But, like... <laughs> West Wing, like, those titles, and it's not just a Sorkin thing, because it would definitely continue into the John Wells era, where I just, like, you look at some of those titles, and you're just like, okay, but what happens in this episode? Just, like, why don't you just tell me what happens in this episode? Yeah, I do and like a title that makes you think, but this one makes sure. me think too much, and makes me, like, go, like, what, 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 what? Yeah, yeah. But and doesn't give you a satisfying sort of aha moment. At ever, this is so, an interesting yeah. episode, because I felt it like it's... It's a little bit of treading water in in some of the storylines. In some and of then the storylines, yes. And then some storylines, it is moving the ball forward a little bit. Um, you know, we're, we're now sort of approaching, I just want to remember, I want to see which uh, number it is. It's number 17 right. of 22. So It's two episodes before Let Bartlett Be Bartlett, which is, correct. I feel like, where the season, like, Congeals. clicks into endgame yes. mode. Yes. Like, so it's, yeah. yeah. Let Bartlett Be Bartlett really launches you into the final three episodes of the season, and you're really starting to get a sense of... Um, and it's a mission statement yeah. episode. It yes. really, like, it, it's one of those episodes that tells you that, like, we've been paying attention to the way things have been going, too. Like, we've been paying attention to all the little failures that have been happening along the mm-hmm. way. So, like, that's cool. And this episode doesn't really play into that as much. I think you're right. I think you're not incorrect about the treading water thing. Well, it's it's not it, it's interesting. So, I, I think that it's actually an interesting comparison with Let Bartlett Be Bartlett because I do feel like this episode is a little bit of um, trying to do something with this child labor trade bill sort of situation that they're in, yeah. um, and and there is sort of a futility in it to a certain degree. Like they think they've got this thing locked down, right? But like everything in politics, and especially within this administration, it feels like everything is sort of tenuous. Um, And and I think that that tenuous component really sort of codifies. And that's when the Let Bartlett Be Bartlett thing happens, where it's like, we're past tenuous now. We're now at a place where we're just not achieving anything anymore. And yet, by all indications, because like Abby gets Becky Reisman to pull her rider on the bill. So like by all indications, the bill is still going to pass. We don't really get any like 
resolution on that at the end, but like we can sort of assume. Yes. So it's not like they're taking an L in this as they are in things like um, the Lowell Lydell thing or Correct. the Correct. Um, like certain other things that happen in the season where they're just like they they put the uh, the the sex education report in a drawer, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And this one. It's not like it's like a no, another demoralizing defeat for the Bartlett White House, Correct. but it does sort of it it moves pieces along. I think obviously the reason why I asked for this episode was mm. the last time I was on it was the first Abby Bartlett episode, Correct. and this is the third of her three appearances in the first season, and this one is definitely my favorite. Like there argument scene at the end of this episode is absolutely why I want to talk about this one because it's so it's, good and it's it, so like powerfully performed by the both of them but especially Stalker Channing. Like Stalker Channing, I've joked before that like Stalker Channing should have won a Tony award for this uh, episode because it's like it's very like her theatrical voice is like really really in service in this episode and like too beautiful effect as far as I'm concerned. It's really interesting cuz if you look at the three episodes which is um the first one being the state dinner. The second one is oh my god, why am I drawing a blank on the name of it? It's uh, he shall from time to time. Of when, course, uh, right when he collapses and she right. tells Leo that he's got MS. Yeah. Right, and then this one. Yeah. It's a really interesting trifecta of sort of seeing the the range of Abby's character, yes, and what they sort of what they learn about her, what they sort of unpack about her, and what will ultimately be what she becomes as she becomes a regular in season two and, and, and right. really sort of start to really dig into Abby. I had uh, Carrie Currigan on to talk about um, an episode and uh, she brought up Dead Irish Writers as one of her favorite episodes. Yeah. And when you think about that scene, when you think about Abby, Donna, CJ, Amy Gardner sitting in that scene together, great and you scene. actually, it's, a great, it's a great scene, and you get to see the breadth of what Aaron Sorkin is capable of when it comes to writing female characters when he right, applies right. himself. You get a little less patient with some of the other stuff. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but Abby just becomes such a three-dimensional, full-blooded character. So much yeah. of it obviously being in Channing's performance, but uh, Stalker Channing's performance, that is. But it, it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting you pick this episode, because I do want to unpack the Abby of it all, um, yeah. and how she plays into the, the bigger picture of the show. Yeah. Um, but I also sort of want to talk about the other, there's a, let me give a synopsis real quick, and then yeah, we'll yeah, kind yeah. of dive into the things. Uh, the president, uh, the president, and first lady's staffs feud over rival event agendas when her public statements about foreign child labor abuse inspires a congresswoman, Congresswoman Reisman, uh, to attach an amendment that will surely torpedo a long delayed inter, uh, international tariff bill favored by the president. What's more, when the reverend, uh, sorry, the reverend, when the revered chairman of the Federal Reserve dies, the president is under pressure to name the former head's top lieutenant as his successor the same who the same man who seriously dated the first lady in college away from the white house zoe clashes with her boyfriend charlie when she suggests that he not step out together with her at an upcoming club opening at the request of the secret service we're just concerned about recent hate letters concerning their interracial relationship josh asks opinionated toby to mind his manners prior to parlaying with important congressmen the White House Pro-Am aired on March 22nd, 2000. It was written by uh, Lawrence O'Donnell uh, and Paul Redford and Aaron Sorkin. It was directed by Ken Olin. Uh, 15.76 million viewers tuned into the episode. 
Um, there's a couple quotes I wanted to read real quick here. Alan Greenspan yeah. was troubled because about two months ago I killed the Fed chair with a heart attack and nobody on the show gave a damn that the guy was dead. That was Aaron Sorkin <laughs> saying that. Uh, then Janelle Maloney said, dirty little secret, I have a crush on Alan Greenspan. There's something kind of mythical about him. He's so powerful. He and his wife watched the show and I just thought, my God, Alan Greenspan is sitting on Wednesday nights watching me on TV. An interesting crush for Janelle when Maloney was, to have. When was that quote? <laughs> that quote was from like around this episode. Around the time of the episode. Yes, okay, that's yes. well, that was sort of one of the things I was going to mention. So clearly the Fed chair and, you know, and this is analogous to Alan Greenspan mm-hmm. in real life. And I think at that time there was, I think because, you know, end of the Clinton administration, the economy was going very well. And um, obviously like pre 9-11, pre, you know, all this sort of stuff. It would have been. It would have made sense that Alan Greenspan was a revered figure, was an at least incredibly respected figure. Totally, totally. And so, but like again, as with many of these West Wing things, now we look at it like post the economic collapse in two thousand eight and all of these things. Like we don't have that much of a as much yeah. of a sunny uh, look at Alan Greenspan, no. and that I thought, that I thought was uh, really interesting. Maybe Janelle Maloney really likes Andrea Mitchell or something like that. Who possible. It's very possible. I I think it's interesting just that. That Alan Greenspan was a name that was known, right? Like yes. the Fed chair right. was yes. a thing yeah. that ultimately became known again when, you know, the economy cratered in 2008. Right. And everyone right. was like, who's going to save us from ourselves? Right. Um, so there was that. It's always a bad sign when, like, the names of the heads of yeah. financial institutions are well known. The fact that we all knew who Ben Bernanke was was a terrible, terrible, terrible sign. Terrible, terrible sign. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, would, I would argue that it's never a good sign for us to know the heads of most government agencies. I think that's. Uh, the fact yes. that we know who Dr. Fauci is is not a great thing. Right, um, right. It, you Heck know. of a job, Brownie. Like, we don't, like, the fact <laughs> we that we knew that guy's name was really, really bad. That was yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. It, it, it comes back to something I was talking with a, uh, with a friend of mine about a little while ago about how, you know, uh, for four years, we just, we were so inundated with government that it became just truly exhausting to be that hyper aware of the government the government for all intents and purposes in my mind is something i really shouldn't be paying all that much attention to um so i i'm i'm with you there and it's tough it's been tough to turn that faucet off like mentally like it's you know it's one of those things that i find myself having to force myself to be like stop like take a breath if you like Two days from now, this is not going to be the crisis that it seems mm-hmm. to be right now. Not everybody's, you know, tweet about something is, yeah. you know, indicative. It's, it's something you need to, like, dedicate your mental, you know, bandwidth to. Well, yeah, it's, it's I mean, I, I got so used to waking up in the morning, looking at my phone and just having my heart sink just many times over yeah uh, it is it's it's something it's definitely left scars for sure yeah. um oh, yeah. there's a there's yeah. a quote from rob lowe that i think is funny too he said i go to lunch uh at the gym every day to keep my energy up and aaron has always been fascinated by that he always says how can you do that you work so hard how can you go to the gym at lunch the next thing i know i get an episode for samson's gym yeah. uh it, it's it's I, I think that's indicative of something that um that i'm sure uh you've thought about it and I'm sure we've perhaps even spoken of the idea of um, the writers trying to learn about the actors and what yeah. tools they have in their tool belts in order to make yeah. sure that we're doing stuff that feels second nature to them you know what yeah. I mean I think that anytime you can do that's a good thing 
Clearly, this is something that emanates off of Rob Lowe because because you think about Parks and Recreation and okay. his character there. That was such a big part of that character, sure, sure. too, of just like this quest to be like, you know, the first whatever, the first human being to live to 150 years old, <laughs> like that whole kind of thing. And so, like, clearly you must you spend oh. enough time with Rob Lowe and you just sort of be, marvel at his you know, physique. physical condition. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, OK, that makes when sense. When he gets the flu, it's a tremendous oh, episode of Parks and Rec. His, his staring at himself and saying, stop pooping is one of yeah. the Oh yeah, one of the, one of the great line meetings in television history. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so I this love ep- in this episode yeah, the please. the scene where he has with Toby, where Toby literally looks at him is just like, "How much healthier do you want to get?" Like, <laughs> but yet when he leaves, Toby's like says to Josh, "Like, I got to get yeah. to the gym." <laughs> like something like that. It's just like, oh, okay. Um, so clearly, it's, like Toby gets it for sure. I th- whenever you get a sense of <laughs> of Toby's jealousy of yes. Sam. It's, yes. It doesn't happen often, but when it yeah. does happen, it just, yeah. it really, you really get a sense of the. Toby's Every once in a while, I'll look at one of my friends who's still in their 20s and I'll just be like, your youth disgusts me. And I feel like <laughs> that's a lot of, you know, Toby's reaction to Sam sometimes. For too. sure, like, for sure. Yeah. He also, I mean, not to not to jump ahead to to another episode, but um, Celestial Navigation is a perfect episode of Toby's annoyance at Sam's little picadillos and, and sort of oddities. Yes. That's a great uh, runner throughout the it's, series. It's a, you know, he's like, You're, there really is something freakish about you. Uh <laughs> It's great. Uh, So we don't have any Mandy in this episode. I know you're. I know. Is this the first time that that's happened? You've been going through them one by one. Is this the first? Yeah. Yeah. This is the bells were ringing. The bells are ringing. It's a sign of things to come. There's this dark cloud starting to. Yeah. It's. it's, And you know what's funny is I've seen this episode a good eight to ten times, and this is the first time I've ever noticed that she's not in this episode, which is even worse sign for Mandy. Like, yeah, correct. She uh, in the in the previous episode to this, which was uh, six meetings before lunch if i'm not mistaken no 20 hours right after this 20 hours in la was the episode that preceded this um where where mandy is sort of not really doing very much in that episode she's kind of she does she go to la with them i feel like she does because isn't she like the one who agrees with uh the pollster who's having sex with joey lucas like of course she's like the one maybe i'm like just grafting his opinion onto hers because that's always her role is to like but maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe she doesn't go to L.A. I'm trying to remember. Anyway, she doesn't leave much of an impression in that episode. The six no. meetings before, um, she's also in that episode, but that's the episode where um, uh, Lum Lum, the That's panda. the Lum Lum, yes, of course. So she's given Lum Lum Which as her storyline. Which is one of my line. favorite Mandy storylines, if only because she gets that great scene with Toby where he's feeling so good and he's like, nothing can bring me down. And she's just like, I feel like we need to get a companion for Lum Lum. Yeah. He's like, that'll do it. I need you to call China and get us some two pandas. <laughs> Like at least that's funny. Like if you're like if yes, you're not gonna yes. get anything substantive with Mandy, like at least have a scene like that. That was great. and then yeah. and then essentially the the final thrust of her character really is on, uh, based on this memo that starts to circulate about yes. her. So that right. that's really kind of and and a harbinger of things. To, you know what I mean? Of the sense yeah. that like yeah. she's not a team player. Blah blah blah. I, I right. think she's unnecessarily maligned for her role in that whole thing. I do too. Yeah, but it's it is it is what it is. Um, yes. So this episode opens with Abby doing a television appearance with a student uh, whose name escapes me. but um, Jeffrey, I think. Jeffrey, something. Jeffrey, yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, to talk about child labor. 
Um, and Sam is watching this on TV with Abby's chief of staff, Lily, played by what's the actress's name? Her name is, uh, as I have this right in front of me, and now, of course, I've scrolled past it. So, uh, <laughs> all my preparation, Nadia Dejani. Sure. Who we were talking before we started recording. We were, yeah. She seems like a familiar face that maybe totally. I've only seen in a couple of things. I could have sworn she was on like multiple episodes of Sports Night, but apparently only one episode of Sports Night. Okay. Um, but maybe it was a particularly memorable one. Like who the hell knows? But like I, I just remember her from Sex and the City. I know she she was she was Aiden's girlfriend post Carrie. She gives Carrie the, the weird face. look yeah, when the they're face. in the bathroom. But so a funny story about that though is mm. that on the Carrie Diaries, the CW yes, yes, I like series, the, I like the it's a re- it was a really good show. Really good I'm show, really yeah. sad that it got canceled too early. Same. She played I want to say a girlfriend of Carrie's dad. Okay. Like she shows up, and I remember being like, "Wait a second! Like the streams <laughs> are crossing. Like what in the world's going on?" Yeah. Um. But I'm pretty sure that that uh, that that's the character she played in character. And again, it was just like one episode. But like maybe I it liked is that her. episode. Yeah, she's. I wish she had been in more West Wing. I wish a lot of the guest stars on West Wing had been on more West Wing. But like, yeah, she's a really interesting character, and it's and it represents a really interesting sort of facet about Abby's character and the way she functions within this universe that I think Mm -hmm. is really kind of, you know, fascinating and interesting. I think when I was on the last time, we talked about uh, the, obviously, the obvious comparisons to Bill and Hillary Clinton that the Bartlett marriage sort of uh, reflects and in some ways is reminiscent of and in some ways is a a, a pivot away from, I think an Mm -hmm. intentional pivot away from. But one of the things that is like definitional about Abby is she has her own career and she has her own ambitions and she has her own political sort of viewpoint. Like obviously she's like was an integral part of the team to get, you know, her husband where he is today. But also this episode, the the Hillary Clinton-ness of her character is very much present in the fact that she has a policy agenda. And I think obviously Hillary Clinton with healthcare was like a major, major, like the first time that we really had a first lady who had a policy agenda that was sort of specific and not like I don't want to say like busy work, but like, you know, like Nancy Reagan had just say no and all this sort of shit and whatever and Nancy Reagan is a whole other subject. But like She was given a real piece of legislation like she was given right that's the thing she she was part of like yes yeah and i think and i but i think what this episode sort of does for the viewer is like like we all sort of knew that hillary had a a policy to uh, work with in the clinton administration but this one is just like right take it a step further so if the first lady has a policy agenda she's got a staff and she has people working for her and maybe when her staff and the president's staff are at cross purposes, there's some um, going to be some conflict. And I thought, I remember when I watched it the first time, I was like pretty fascinated by that. It was just like, oh, right. Like, of course, like she's yeah. not just one of the president's, one of the people working for the president. She's work- also, you know, operating on her own track. And yeah. I think the argument that she and Jed have in the Oval Office at the end of the episode is, again, Sorkin being like, right, what if the Clintons, but what if, you know, we, they had, Jed has that line about, like, I won't be these people. I won't be people who stake out agendas on morning shows yeah. and um, send messages through the press. I'll, I'll 
drop my resignation off at uh, at the Capitol. Yeah. And and I think that was again Sorkin just being like like what if the president didn't want to operate you know the way that we thought that the Clintons operated which was because by this point you're you know this is obviously many years from healthcare this is the point where post Monica Lewinsky Hillary's already I believe making a plan to run for Senate by the time this episode is in production so like clearly not only were the Clintons political animals maneuvering around each other, but by that point in history, they were moving almost at cross purposes to each other. Like they were almost oppositional to uh, each other. And there was a lot of that rumor about like, you know, are she, is she going to get elected to the Senate and then like drop a divorce paper on his like doorstep? I yeah. think that was one of the, the things people would talk about. Well, it's, but, it's, um, yeah. it's interesting that you, that you say that because I do feel like, you know, Abby's character is interesting because I don't feel like that she particularly likes politics, right? Like she doesn't, she doesn't radiate the, the uh, uh, a sense of wanting to throw her weight around. Particularly, I sure. feel like from she's time not a politician to time, like Toby is. Like she's not right. like, or like Josh is, where right. she wants to like get her hands dirty and like maneuver and sort of like wheel and deal. Yeah, I think like she's a doctor and. Yeah. She's somebody who, like, I think that makes a lot of sense. The the areas in which she uh, is passionate about certain things. And obviously child labor hits her hard because she's got three daughters. And, uh, you know, that sort of thing. The things she says at the end of the episode about how if that was one of our girls, you'd send in the Marines. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. And I think this episode sort of, like, draws a line to that distinction where it's just, like, she is operating in a world of politics but she's not necessarily she's not a wonk she's not a mover and shaker well i think what's interesting is so as we mentioned she becomes a series regular in season two season two they go all in on ms right i mean the, the, yes. the, the ms storyline becomes sort of this all-encompassing thing yeah. um which is very smart because it's it it pulls Abby into that universe, right? It's it's yeah. personal, but it's also the ramifications of, of this medical decision or medical decisions that she made. I just think it's interesting because it it ultimately means she doesn't have to deal with the with agendas and politics and like her staff right. and yet she's a major player in this universe. Because I think that if they, I, I don't, I guess what I'm getting at here is I don't know how gracefully these two things actually coexist. When yeah. she's having her big scene with Sam and Sam's kind of, quite frankly, telling her the real about like the mistakes that she's made and, and what right. have you. Right. The look on her face is a person that's like, he's right. And right. I'm out of my depth. Like, this isn't really my thing. Like, what, right. what do I have to do in order to fix this? It doesn't change, obviously, her feelings about the way that her husband has handled it. But it's... It, right. it's, it's So I, I just don't think that they, they particularly align well, which is why I think the decision is very smart to have it, that her her role in season yeah. two is much more of, of doctor and wife. I, I, think that's that tr- I think that's true. I think as somebody who you know, likes what Stalker Channing's bringing to that character anyway. I think the idea of her as, you know, with a political agenda is intriguing to me regardless. I don't think you're wrong. But I also think it's it's telling that the fact that 
three seasons after this, they essentially re-walk some of these beats. Like, yep. Josh has a scene with Abby in season four, the episode where where it ends up leading up to Amy gets hired as Abby's new yep. chief of staff, where essentially it's very similar to the sort of talking to that Sam gives her, where it's just like, your staff isn't yep. professional, and you need, to, you need to, if you want to get anything done, you need to take it seriously, and yada yada. And it's it's funny that you know, it would repeat on itself that way. And essentially, it almost felt like having to jumpstart that engine from from scratch again, where it's just like, oh, right, we want to make, you know, Abby a little bit of a of a power player again. We need to essentially I think that know, reboot this. In, in a perfect world, perhaps, where they were able to sign Mary Louise Parker to be a series regular, I right. think there's a universe where uh, that becomes a far more prominent storyline. Um, right. And, you know... Would have loved to have seen that. I would have yeah. loved to have seen Josh and Amy, you know, lock horns over any number of issues. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that we, we, there wasn't the cards. But I yeah. do think that, um, so we see Sam talking with, with Lily. Uh, I want to kind of uh, hone in on the, the Sam Lily scenes because I, I have to be honest when I say that, like, smug Sam, kind of my least favorite oh, version yeah. of Sam. Yeah. Totally. And and I, I do feel like, and it, it especially rings poorly when he's talking to women. Yes. Um, and and in this episode, we get a couple of those scenes where it's like, like you can dial it back a little bit. Like, you don't need to be yeah. such a dick. I, and, and he it, talks to Lily in shitty ways throughout the episode, I think. I think, I think because he's supposed to be the moral center yeah. of so many things that just like, well, I don't want my moral center to be also like a condescending like <laughs> jerk so much. Like it wears better on Josh because there's a little, there's a self-awareness on the show's part to being like, yeah, Josh can be a cocky asshole. Totally. That's sort of like his very totally. first episode. The very first episode of the series is Josh got in trouble for being a cocky asshole on TV. Like, mm-hmm. that's his character. And it's not Sam's character. And yes. you, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, I think Sorkin often likes to write towards a kind of Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn sort of, you know. Yes, uh, yes. To, like, bantering by, by uh, you know, pecking at each other kind of a yeah, thing yeah. and sure but i think there's <laughs> there there are dynamics in play that don't always serve that super well especially when it is sam i think you're right yeah it's there's just something it, it's just interesting because like it feels like there's almost like and i don't mean to make this seem so binary but sam has many modes but i do feel like there's yeah. either like sam with mallory mode yeah <laughs> which is like or even Sam with like Ainsley Hayes mode, which is sort of flirty Sam, and he's being kind of playful and a little bit docile, and and right. and being kind of the the beta in in that dynamic. And then there's the flip of that where it's like him talking to Lily, or uh, where you're just like, Ugh, I just don't yeah. like this version of it. Yeah. Um, but but we basically. Um, Lily asked Sam if Bartlett could skip going to the hill so that Abby could have the news cycle, which is insane. And then Bernie Dahl dies and, and no one has moved. the news cycle. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Bartlett's reticent to name Ron Ehrlich as the replacement because Abby went out with this guy in college. Okay. Which is not weird. something we find out until that final argument in the last yeah. scene, the, the yes. nature of. And I watching this again, I was like, well, it's been ages since the first time I watched this, but I wonder if the first time people watch this episode, they you maybe wonder if this is maybe somebody that Abby cheated on Jed with, because the way he reacts when he's talking to 
Leo about it yeah. when Leo first tells him that uh, that uh, Bernie Dahl died. And do you want to you know name name Ehrlich now, and it'll settle the markets? And Jed says, "No, I'm not ready to get in bed with Ron with Ron Ehrlich," which makes me one of the few people in my family who haven't. And when he said that, I was just like, "Well, that sounds like his mood is so dark in yes. that moment that I'm just like, oh, there's there seems to be some genuine hurt, and also the fact that like if he's willing to." stake the markets on this like it's got to be serious and when you find out at the end that like abby dated him for either six or nine months it is a bit in dispute um he then retroactively looks petulant and like kind of irresponsible like and the other thing that i thought was the washington press in like in a real world situation would have flayed him alive for allowing the dow to drop by waiting a day. Like, they wouldn't have known why he waited a day, but he would have gotten fucking excoriated by the press I, I for doing so. And and then there's the whole fact that, that Ron Ehrlich's nickname was Skippy. <laughs> I couldn't tell whether that was a nickname or whether Jed was just being an asshole, but, like, that was... Either way, it's dumb. <laughs> yes, um, it is. Yeah, it's weird. It's... I, I, I... There's... I guess there's something... I mean, it all feels kind of petty on Bartlett's side, obviously, yeah. on, on Jed's side. But it's also like it feels beneath both of them to even really be having this conversation. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, it, it's all kind of weird um, and, and very unlike Jed to feel this way, which, which I think underscores your point, which is that there's a hurt here that's perhaps deeper than they're giving us yeah. knowledge of. Um so then throughout this episode, Donna's reading a book from what life was like a hundred years ago, which it's is a sort classic of classic Donna runner. Like it's one of the, it's it's out of the out of the top ten like best Donna runners ever. Not even best, but just like most Donna thing to do is just like she's been <laughs> yeah. reading a book and she's gonna talk to anybody who'll listen to her about it. It's it's a very Donna runner. It's also a very Sorkin thing to sort of have this funny comedic runner and then it kind of hits you with a gut punch when Charlie brings it up yes. at the diner. Yes. So what feels like this cutesy sort of thing, then all of a sudden hits hard, yeah. um, is a nice sort of uh, whatever sea story run or whatever it is. Right. Um, I, I think that... Uh, so, so Josh forces Toby to meet with these Democrats that are voting against this trade bill. Um, to the... To, Again, this is one of those situations. If you watch enough West Wing episodes, if Toby's happy about something at the beginning of the episode, you right. can guarantee that he will either not be happy by the end of the episode, yes. or the episode will be about how he might lose that happiness. Right. So, like, right. it's it's so Toby being this confident is so unlike Toby that yes. you know it's going to go poorly. He's and it's something we'll learn about him in the flashbacks at the beginning of season two, where it's yeah. just like he's somebody who is not used to victory in his political career. So it like it's an odd it can be an odd fit on him. Um that scene at the bar at, oh, yeah. in uh, in uh, the Shadow Two Gunman. How many yes. uh, elections have you won, including this one? Yeah. No. <laughs> It's great. And no, it's a great scene and it's a great sort of building block to Toby's character yes. too, where it's yes. just like it makes a lot of things make sense. Yes. But it's also the fact that like, and you get this with Josh too a lot. This time it's Toby's turn to hate yeah. Congress, but like the sort of bone deep hatred of the Congress is, <laughs> feels A, realistic and B, like something yeah. that like, you know, they kind of pass, it's like, a, it's a ball that they pass back and forth to each other. For sure, this, for sure. This one's interesting because it's, 
it's the fact that like that they want to get these congressmen because they are represent the sort of staunch liberal wing of the Democrats in Congress and they don't want the story to be that they passed this trade bill, but that their base is, you know, upset with them. Which, sure, like that's a classic communications office, you know, thing that's got to be, that's, you know, that's why Toby's involved. Um, But it's also, it reminded me that like, we talked a little bit last time about how like, it's weird that people turn to Aaron Sorkin for political opinions because his politics are kind of unformed and all over the place. And like Aaron Sorkin on free trade is really, is a runner that sort of like comes up every once in a while again. And it's again, it's a vestige of the Clinton era where like in the Clinton era, Free trade was sort of seen by the, you know, especially on the left as. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A universal good. And this is sort of, you know, that, you know, Clinton had made his uh, made his bed and he was, you know, all in on free trade and all that sort of stuff. And you see it again in the episode where Toby goes to show the kids how to protest the uh, the episode with Great Roma episode. Mafia as the cop, which is fantastic. So but he talks about there about how like free trade stops wars, yada yada yada, all that sort of stuff. I think it's interesting. Uh, yeah. in, a, in an upcoming episode, as I mentioned, Carrie Corrigan and I had a, a discussion about Aaron Sorkin's political bent, if you will. Yeah. Um, he, he is sort of the quintessential boomer in this regard, um, which yes. is that, you know, he literally just made a film, uh, Chicago 7, about, you know, radicalism. Um, but if you bring up Bernie Sanders to him today, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, right. let's, let's all relax. Let's yeah, yeah. crazy here. Uh, so it's, <laughs> It, it, it definitely yeah. does feel as though uh, he's definitely gone through the boomer churn of the 60s were all about, we got to change it, we got to change it. Yeah. You know, 80s come around. We're getting really rich now. And then we're on the other side of we're the We're working 80s. within the system. <laughs> you know, we got a, you know, a better capitalism, you know, a more, yes. you know, whatever, yes. compassionate capitalism. Sure. Yeah. But it's, it's always interesting to me that in the post-Sorkin era, then in the John yeah. Wells era, they had an episode where essentially Josh gets blindsided on a free trade bill yes. where all of these things that he had been promising the you know the the labor uh, lobbyists and whatever about keeping jobs in in the United yeah. States totally like goes against him and all of these jobs get shipped off to India and it's i was like oh finally at least the west wing is yeah. confronting the idea that like after all of these you know free trade sort of you know 
one-sided boosterism that's just like, oh, right, no, the downside to this is a lot of people's jobs go overseas. And yeah, it's 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 very strange. I mean, it's, it is fascinating to watch this show through the prism of where we are now. Obviously, yeah. that's, you know, one of the myriad of things that, that is great about this show. Um, you know, when you see sort of, you know, when the FEC... Uh, uh, um, positions open up in Bartlett, uh, let Bartlett be Bartlett. Yeah. Uh, this idea of like, there's all these fundamental systemic things within America that this show is sort of really looking down the barrel of in the tail end of season one yeah. where, you know, again, we're, we're in 99, we're in the top of 2000, we're about mm-hmm. to head into a very contentious election that, you know, arguably didn't really resolve itself um, right, and, right. And, and creates any number of issues coming off of that election. It's hard not to, in a weird way, look at this season of TV as sort of really trying to be like, pay fucking attention to what yeah. we're talking about here. Right, right. We're kind of at the tip of the spear. You know, when you look at Sam talking about privacy laws, uh, when, yeah. when it comes to the, the Mendoza uh, appointment, when, right. you, when you see all these pieces of this season of TV, more so than season two, which is a lot more sort of, I don't want to say soapier, but a little, a little less pointed. Yeah. Because this isn't going into an election year, you can't help but feel a little bit like this show is really kind of saying like, listen, Please, Definitely. like you're, they're shaking people, right, right, and then and then you're like, fucking nothing happens, <laughs> right. Well, and then yeah, and then all of a sudden politics becomes this like never ending right. game of like, oh fuck, what's going on, right, like, right, yeah. It's yeah. it's it's really interesting, and 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 it com- it makes me think back to uh, Emily Vanderwerf's very you know uh, salient issues with the show sure. in terms yeah. of how we viewed the Obama years, right? Like post. Uh, post Clinton but more post W that idea of like yeah. we're, we we've got it back right we've got a majority we've got this 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 you know uh transformative politician it's all going to be good yeah. and we're going to we've got our Bartlett he's we're finally we've got the person who's going to systemically change everything and then when he right. was unfortunately incapable of doing so we then slipped into some fucking Which is dark so timeline <laughs> because and I get I've, you know, I've uh, read and listened to Emily on on the West Wing mm-hmm. and like she her that is a incredibly uh, salient and on target critique in many ways. But I think one of the things about that critique is it's not just that like Aaron Sorkin was whatever irresponsible or mm-hmm. or you know created an unrealistic vision. It's that the people who then watched the West Wing and then got jobs in government and sort of allowed that naivete to lead them perhaps to make some mistakes is, well, maybe you just weren't watching the West Wing closely enough because like so much of the West Wing was that this frustration at the fact that they couldn't get all these things done. Like, yes, there was a big speech at the end and whatever, but like, Ultimately, they were frustrated by these things as often as they were successful at these things. And I agree. Ultimately, like Sorkin's making a TV show and not sort of creating a society in mm-hmm. like Sims or something like that. You know what I mean? Where it's just no, like totally. the the satisfaction of the way that these plots would end with like I like the idea that 
a different showrunner writing a different show about politics would have ended storylines and episodes and whatever a lot more messily and a lot more um, unsatisfyingly. Like, you know, the, like kind of like leave the audience on a bummer note of just like, well, you know, that sucks. Like, you know, a little more cynical if more realistic. That's a different show and that's, you know, and I think that also has its downfall. I've, I've, you know, been obviously listening to these episodes that you've been doing and I think one of the things that you bring up a lot is how House of Cards and Scandal is the other end of that spectrum, yeah. right? And those ones, yes, which are like ultra cynical, ultra, you know, pessimistic about the the goodness of public officials and the, uh, you know, the ability for them to do good is, yes, true. But I also feel like that's also dangerous in its own way. I think the way that a show like House of Cards and Scandal to a different degree, but like, I think at some point when you're, you know, having the president murder a Supreme court justice in her hospital bed, like you've maybe like left the realm of, of, (laughs) you know, political commentary. But I think something like house of cards being so incredibly cynical, I think there's also a desensitizing aspect to that too, of just like, Oh, well, of course these politicians are going to do the worst, most self-interested and vile thing possible. So why are we even surprised? That was the one of the things about the Trump era where everything like he would do is and like there'd always be somebody being like, I don't know why we're surprised. And it's just like, yes, but we can still be like, we can still be furious about it. Right. We can still we can't we don't have to necessarily let go of the part of ourselves that is like, I'm I there is a there is an ideal here that is not being met, and I'm fucking mad about it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I've I've as I've uh, been doing these episodes episodes, I have been thinking about what sort of the the ideal political show that could exist right now is. I mean, I'd yeah. love to see what Liz Hanna's West Wing would look like. I'd love Fuck to see yeah. any number of writers who who I obviously love and respect, yeah. and I think could come at this thing with a with an element of idealism, but but yes. a groundedness, yes. um, and still make you believe in the possibility of government. Right. Um, and and would it be on broadcast television? Probably not. Yeah. Um, but that's fine. Like I, I think that there is a great. There, there is another great political drama out there um, yeah. that finds a way to navigate these waters um, in a in a um, nuanced and intelligent and funny and heartwarming way. I think it's possible. Yeah. Um, but but I think that this show, for its time, for its moment, was just giving us the the, the blueprint for it in a, in a crazy way, or at least alerting us to issues that it was very prescient about and, and, yeah. and looking, you know, um, th- that's maybe of this final run of, of, of season one episodes. I was just really hit with the holy fuck, like, you know, the, the yeah. don't ask, don't tell the FEC, uh, you know, the, the piracy, the, the privacy stuff, all this. I'm just like, mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> like, why yeah. is no one like listening to this stuff? And yeah. I'm not even sitting here saying that had Al Gore, um, I mean, he did win the election, but you understand my point. Had Al Gore actually been yes. inaugurated and become, I, I'm not convinced that that guy was the guy that was going to get us back, you know, right. to, to that's center. A, but, right. That's know. a sliding doors future that I definitely would like to, you know, pursue and see what would happen. But yeah, sure. Al Gore wasn't going to be the, you know, the utopia candidate either. And, no. you know, he would have faced a lot of opposition. And, but there's. With, I think, with Lieberman as his VP? Oh, oh my boy. God, what you a know, world. Jesus Christ. That's <laughs> wild to think about. 
But like I do like for all of the for as much as we talk about Aaron Sorkin, the idealist and sort of the yeah. the fairy tale politics of the Bartlett White House, yeah. I do think there's more frustration there than we remember, and I think there's more um you know, and I think that's something that obviously the stretch of episodes that we're getting into with the yes, West yes, definitely for deals sure. with. And and I mean and Danny as well, who plays such an this important role in Danny this. This is a great Danny episode, by the way. A great like, Danny episode. As and, is and, uh, yeah, and yeah. none of it is CJ stuff, which like I've talked yes. about how I do like the Danny CJ stuff, but I like that they're giving yeah. Danny fun stuff to do that isn't that. I thought his scene with well, first of all, the scene with Bartlett and Leo, where Bartlett's trying so ham-fistedly to get him to give up his source, and Leo's off in the corner just being like, for God's sake. <laughs> it's so funny to me. Like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great, great flavor scene. of Leo. Yeah. It's a really great flavor of Leo. For sure. I mean, Danny has... Um, this is a, a great episode for Danny, uh, and, and we'll unpack that uh, in a quick second, but I, I just want to say that Danny is the voice in Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. Yes. He he literally crystallizes for CJ and the audience yeah. all of the problems that are going on in this administration. Yeah. And you've been watching, you know, at this at with Bart- Bartleby Bartlett, it's episode twenty one uh, nineteen, I believe. Something along those yeah, lines. 18 it is. Or 19. If this is seventeen, then that's nineteen. Yeah. So yeah. like it, you you you've watched nineteen episodes of of a show invested mm-hmm. in an administration that we think has been kind of effective, right? Yeah. And right. then you have Danny come out and be like, no. They've, they've been fucking tripping over themselves the entire time. It really recontextualizes that season. And it's yeah. and this was at a time where TV was still very, very, very episodic. And, yes, like, yes. there were, you know, obviously there were primetime soaps that, you know, had long-going storylines. And, and TV dramas would carry over certain things episode to episode. But we were far, far, far still from the era of, you know, lost, unlocking TV's, you know, new era of serialization, right? Mm-hmm. But that episode was just like, oh, this has been building to a thing. And that's not always a thing that Sorkin does well. But, like, whether by accident or by, you know, he he managed to get that one right. Like, Bartlett B. Bartlett is just like, oh, right. Like, this all really was building up to something. And it got to a really, really good point. And this tees up a lot of that. Even if it's not doing it in maybe the most overt ways. But when you look at the fight between uh, Abby and Jed, it, it... tells us that there's going to be a big fight between Leo and and Jed in the West Wing. There, well, sorry, in the Oval Office. The Oval Office really has a lot of tempest in a teapot, you know, fights in there. It's, it's Toby and Toby and Toby and Jed for the uh, the seventeen, 17 people, people scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I thought the the really telling line in this episode, and it's very quickly actually, and and it uh, maybe passes notice sometimes, is after their fight. When Abby says, I'm still going to kick your ass on child labor. And he sort of just kind of like sighs and it's just like, Abby. And it's that sigh of, you know, I can't do this good thing that you are telling me I need to do. And it's one of, it's again, it's another example of the Bartlett White House, like butting its head up against what is possible. And I think if there is an Aaron Sorkin a uh, consistent political viewpoint. It's a thing that Danny mentions in Bartlett B. Bartlett when he says, why are Democrats always so bumfuzzled? It's yeah. a thing that he brings up in other episodes and in other shows where it's just like, if Democrats would just be as aggressive and forthright about their progressive uh, politics as Republicans are about their reactionary and mm-hmm. and sort of backwards thinking politics, they would do better. And whether or not that is true, it is 
to, like talk to anybody who loyally votes Democrat and they will tell you that that's what they want their Democratic candidates yeah. to do. Well, you just you you want, you know, the, 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 I, I hate to say this because I feel like such a cliche, but the, the Republican Party has made a brand out of uh, the, the perception of strength. Yes. Um, the the idea of we're gonna fight, we're strong, uh, you know, just this this sort of red blooded American kind of idealism, and the Democrats have always been seen as liberal, bleeding heart, uh, just yeah. not having that fortitude. Yeah. I mean, it's and and that's it's a branding issue is ultimately what it comes down to that the Democrats yeah. just can't seem to stick to their guns on things to really feel like they're fighting for you. Yeah. It's very, it's disheartening. <laughs> but It is. They're the part, they're a party of calculation. They're a party yeah. of, and whatever, not to get into too much of a political yes, discussion, yes, but yes, like yeah. it's easier. I think it's easier to be a Republican, to be a conservative because all you have to do is sit on the ball and run out the clock, yeah, yeah. right? Throw like that's sort of, the gears. Yeah, that's it. And and Democrats have a lot other things that they have to yes. like to, to move and a lot bigger of a more diverse of a coalition to bring together. All that totally. sort of stuff, like whatever. Yeah. Um and I think that's something that Aaron Sorkin that's a Gordian knot that Aaron Sorkin looks at and is like, well, just cut right through it you know yes. why don't yeah, you yeah, just yeah, yeah. with you know verbally you know with sure. uh, you know with the power of you know these great this great oratory and it's not just oratory it's conviction i think that's the big aaron sorkin thing yes. is if you would just stick to your guns and be forthright about this stuff mm-hmm. we'd all be better off and yeah. he's maybe not wrong i don't disagree i i yeah. think that um i think all that makes sense i want i want to pivot for a second here because i do feel like one of the things about this episode that I didn't love was uh, everyone talking down to CJ about learning the signs with Bartlett. See, that's interesting. I think this is a really good CJ episode. I don't think it's a bad CJ episode. I'm saying, I think CJ is great. What I don't love is Sam being like, gotta learn the signs, CJ, and hearing like, I I don't love men talking to CJ in this patronizing way. She's right in the end. She did read the signs correctly. It's I think just... I see it a little bit less patronizing as that, like, that sort of, it almost feels like teammates and being like, you know, and oh. she's sort of like, you know, she's okay. not hitting her free throws and they're just like, you got to hit your free throws, like that kind of thing. And I think That's this fair. episode combined with what happens in the next episode, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite CJ storylines of the season, which is she's got to deal with the Zoe thing where she lied about her classmate. And mm-hmm. essentially what she's got to do is... Uh, talk tough to the president and make sure that he yeah. doesn't go and blow up in front of the press. And that's another one where Sam's just like, you got to get up in his face. And she's like, get up in his face. But like, it's Terrible CJ. Advice. It's not that CJ's like learning the job on the fly, but like it is her, it's a progression of her getting better and more confident in her job. And maybe it's yes. annoying that like the most, like the one major female character in this administration has to get better at her job. Whereas like seemingly Toby doesn't have to do that. Uh, Josh doesn't have to do that. Yeah. But I think it makes you root for her all the more. I think that's, I think that's a I big part of the reason why people love CJ so much is mm-hmm. there is some self doubt there and there is some, there's a there's an arc that she goes on and she totally. just gets better and better and better at what she does and she learns the science and she learns how to get in the president's face and all this sort of stuff. Um, I agree with I, I agree with that. I I, I think it, I, and that's an interesting interpretation and 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 a fair one. I, I think that I 
you know, having having been doing a deep dive into all these episodes, I think sure. I, there's just certain things that there's I've, a like, pattern kind of for sure. Yeah. On, you know, well, and once again, uh, this is an episode where CJ doesn't know about a thing, where she's just like, right, you know, right, when she doesn't right. know about uh, economics. And to be fair, seemingly nobody but the president knows about economics. Yeah. And like, that's, yes. that's definitely exactly. a thing that comes up. Uh, I, you brought up Zoe. Um, so oh, it's yeah. worth, I just want to kind of talk about this this storyline, which is, is is quite, you know, it's probably the B story. It uh, definitely is. This story. has my biggest logistical snag, which is... Interesting, okay. It makes, it very much makes no sense that Zoe is the one who has to tell Charlie that there are being death threats made on his life. Like, that's a Ron Butterfield problem. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's, you know, the fact that it's not even the president, it's not Leo, it's got to be Zoe who has to, like, I get that it has to be Zoe to broach the, like, their relationship part of it, but, like, for Charlie to learn for the first time that there have been, like, threats made against his life because he's dating her should not come from her, and it, like, it, it, and I don't want to be, like, the nitpicker, but, like, that's a pretty significant one. Like, that... It no, I don't. I don't would disagree. Would not have gone down like that. Yeah. Well, so this, the, it's an interesting scene because Zoe's called into the into the White House, or yeah. sorry, into the Oval Office. The president says it's time for me to tell you about some letters that we've been getting. He sort of, you know, lays out the situation and says you you can't take Charlie to this club opening. Yeah. Which, by the way, I call bullshit on that more than anything. Like the Secret sure. Service can can fucking figure it out. Yeah, but that's they that's at least the, had what's her face, uh, Georgia Fox. Why can't I yes, remember uh, Gina, the character? Gina. Name? Gina. They at least had Gina sort of like go through the cursory like. Yeah. There's a back exit. We can't yeah. cover the alley. Yeah. Yada yada yada. It's just yeah. like okay, like whatever. I mean, your ass. whatever. Yeah. But yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and they didn't exactly prove their worth in the end of season four. So maybe we're all we're all <laughs> true. You know, yeah, we're all wrong. Yeah. But I I do think that um, it's an interesting scene. With and and to be fair, Jed does say like, "Do you want me to tell him?" Right. And she's the one that says, "No, I want to tell him." Um, I think that she likes to think, perhaps, that if it comes from her, he won't be as upset about it. Yeah. Um, spoiler: that doesn't go well. Right. Uh, she tells him about it. They're having uh, lunch in the, in a diner, the same diner that they uh, from ER uh, yet again. Yet again, um, very and, useful uh, diner. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very useful diner, uh, and um, and basically he blows up. And then yeah. we have the callback to the hundred years, and he says, "Look at this." Yeah. Turns out, a hundred years ago, uh, a black guy couldn't go to a, uh, couldn't go out with his white girlfriend yeah. in fear of uh, being killed. So there, it's it's again, you know, Dulé Hill, just amazing with just yeah. these unbelievably yeah. emotive eyes, and you're just like, you're he's just so wonderful, yeah. and him and and Elizabeth Moss have such wonderful chemistry. Yeah. Um, so he gets pissed off. He goes back to work. And Danny Kincannon is waiting outside the Oval Office to talk to Bartlett. Part of and a triptych of scenes where Danny just like has scenes with other like it's like it's Mrs. Landingham, it's Abby, it's Charlie. It's just like it's all fantastic. of a sudden, it's like great. Danny's just like hanging with the with the crew. It's really fantastic. right. And yeah. Mrs. Landingham has a great moment where uh, they she's going to give him a ba- cookie. She's yeah. going to give you a cookie. Uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but he senses that Charlie's kind of pissed off. Yeah. Charlie explains to him that he can't go to this club, and and Danny gives him really good advice he says if it's me right now i'd make sure i'm the one guy in her life that's totally hassle free it's a really beautiful scene where he says like listen man i know you're upset i get why you're upset yeah it's not zoe's fault that you're upset it's it's great it's a really good scene from that perspective if there's anything that i have a little bit of a snag on it's Mm -hmm. that that is a moment not specifically that but like charlie's storyline in this episode is a moment where it really feels like 
oh, it would have been nice if the show had other black characters that Charlie could yes. have talked to yes. about this because, like, it you really feel the lack of that in this episode where it's just like Charlie's got to deal with this all by himself. And while Danny does give him very good advice when it comes to Zoe, it really, really would have been good to have him be able to. There's a scene um, in season five where one of the more maligned characters who I always stick up for is Angela Blake when they bring on Angela Blake in season five. Yes, who, yes, yes, um, yes, 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 Who, uh, when, when Josh gets sidelined and they've got to deal with, uh, with um, the uh, majority leader and they shut down the government. She ha- ends up having, in an episode, a scene with Charlie where they just sort of talk about, and she invites him to like a party at her house. That was the episode with Gabrielle Union, which is like an annoying storyline, an annoying episode. But I was like, oh, this is amazing. We're five seasons into this uh, this show, and Charlie gets to have a scene with another black character, and it's like, and it's really, really refreshing because it's just like, oh, holy shit! Like, there's 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 a side to him, and there's a you know, there's a perspective there that can be shared by them, and I it's agree. again when you talk about like this is why diversity on television is not a checklist. This is not why it's just like get to do it to get people off your back and to avoid getting canceled or whatever. It's because you can unlock these doors with these characters and give them perspectives and give them, you know, sides to themselves. And that's if there was one thing I would have wanted out of that that storyline in that episode is just like off oh, only Charlie could have had somebody else to talk to who would have it known would have what been, he's going through. 100% it would have been interesting if Gina was black quite honestly. Um, 100%, I think totally. that that would have, yeah. you know, it, it would have unlocked your point a whole bunch of stuff which i think would have been really interesting um yeah i I don't disagree i mean i'll I'll say this though um when charlie does open up to our characters which he does periodically if it is josh if it is danny if it's whoever um they're really beautiful scenes um and i think that this scene with danny is is a is a really charming lovely scene which then yeah. leads to a great joke in the Oval Office where he's like I just gave some salient advice about Zoe to Charlie and Bartlett says so you're helping my uh, my assistant score with my daughter that's yeah, great thank you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's so it's, it's that stuff's great um, yeah it's it's just um, the it's other moment in that that I like is when Abby comes into the Mrs. Landingham's portion of the office and she sees Danny and she's like, are you here for the Michigan uh, Women's Democratic Caucus? And he's like, I'm actually here to see the president. And she looks at him and like, once you know what's going on, it's just like, he's on to, like, he's on to what's going on. (laughs) And, and they sort of like share a look between each other where he's just like, yeah. And she's just like, okay. And, uh, I don't know. It's really good. It's, it's it's, great. It's, it's, it's a scene that I, there there are a couple of scenes that Danny gets in the Oval Office with Bartlett that have a similar flavor, which is just sort of this, like, we went through an election together. He talks to him about all the different places, all the different, you know, yeah. late night conversations that they had. And and I just, I find uh, the campaign, the election campaign, so fascinating. It's one of the reasons I love season seven of this show. Yeah. It's just like being in the trenches, being out there in the world. Um and I imagine that running for re-election is a very different thing than running for that first election, right? Like yes. the, yeah. the mindset of of a president who's trying to get re-elected as opposed to a person who's trying to become the president. Two different things. Yeah. And I just I'm fascinated by that idea of like what those late night conversations between Bartlett and Danny must have been like. Yeah. Well, um, and he also mentions he says 
uh, you literally wrote the book on my wife, which is the you thing that, like, book. I don't, I always sort of forget that, like, oh, apparently Danny wrote a biography of, of Abby Bartlett. And I sort of, I kind of wish that that had come up. You never really get, never hear about again. that again. And all of the times where, like, she and, and Jed are having problems or whatever, and there's, you know, all this stuff, I was like, and, and Danny kind of goes away for a while too, as many West Wing side characters do. Um, one of the things that I noticed, by the way, well, anyway, I'll finish this thought. Uh, just would have been cool, cool to have, you know, any kind of like moment where like Danny revisits that connection. Yes, to, uh, totally. Yeah. But one of the things I looked up in this too, because I kind of w- mentally went down the road of just like whatever happened to Zoe and Charlie anyway, because they break up fully off screen. Mm-hmm. Do you know she's gone from like early season two until mid season four? Yeah, it sounds right. Elizabeth Moss doesn't show up on the show for like almost for like a season and a half, and it's just well, and yeah. When she shows back up, she's well, <laughs> she's with John Paul all of a she's sudden. She's with John like, Paul, and Josh yeah. has that line. Wow, Zoe really grew up, didn't she? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's so funny because she's such a big part of the la- the latter half of the first season, and then such a big part of uh, the you know the early episodes, the first couple episodes of season two, yeah. and. I think in my mind, it's just like, yeah, Zoe's always just like bopping in and out and around. She's like, oh no, like she fully went away and they broke up off screen and you never really find out why. It's a testament to Elizabeth Moss, obviously, and to, and to Dooley Hill. But I mean, Elizabeth Moss is just, is so good in the role. Um, Yeah. I mean, listen, not to, you know, everyone knows that Elizabeth Moss is one of our greatest actors right now. So it's like, it's a surprise, but she's, she's, she's really tremendous. Uh, There's also, um, we'll we'll get to it at the very end because the last scene they have together is adorable, but um, I, I, I want to talk about, you know, the, the real kind of jewel in the crown of this episode, which is uh, Abby and Jed in the Oval Office. Yes. Uh, um, This sort of final bout that these two have, which the Uh whole episode really is barreling towards. Like there's an inevitability of just how, how Jed is trying desperately to sort of navigate this chess match yeah. so he doesn't have to have this conversation. Right. But there's no way around it. And the way right. she barrels into the office and it's just like sugar pump. Yeah, <laughs> hello, like, gumdrop. It's just like, hello, ah. it's, it's just like, you know it's coming. And there's, they're you, both yeah. just like fucking titans. They're such heavyweights that it's just great. It's, if, uh, I, I'll compare it to watching an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race at a bar with like the <laughs> okay. final lip sync where like so sure, like sure. They'll, they'll do they'll pull off a move or whatever and everybody will just like fucking like flip out and that's sort of how I feel inside when she says um uh what does she say? She's just like, uh, when she says, oh, uh, you said it yourself. If I point uh, Ron or like, like I was going to do, it sounds like I'm taking instructions from my wife. And it's just like, this is fucking <laughs> It's the best fucking bonkers. delivery. It's so great. It's yeah. so great. She's, she's, I mean, both of them are so specific in the way they speak. Yes. So it's really just these two yes. like dialects that are kind of coming at each other. Oh my God. It's, it's, it's really, really special. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really interesting too how like, um, uh, she sort of, she tries to kind of warm it up a little bit. Like she doesn't, really just come in swinging yeah but then it's the slow boil and he's the he actually 
breaks before she does. Like there's this like they both he have their moments. Yells but yes, yeah, yeah. Earlier yeah. than her, yes. And he kind of gives up the game. And yeah. I would argue that if this was actually a physical match, he kind <laughs> right. of he he went too hard too fast, and she's yeah. like waiting him out, and then just like she let it. Yeah, him. she rope a dope him a little bit. Yeah, totally. It's, it's great. It's really great. But there's um, moments where both yeah. of them sort of realize that they like that they they've lost this one they've lost their their little argument on points and you can see it where like she's just like oh yeah like yes you know i was wrong and then um and then he will also uh get to a point where he's just like wait what are you saying what are you uh, taking responsibility yeah, what, what's, for? what's really and, happening it's a really interesting <laughs> argument that way because it, like it has such a flow to it and it has and then they reach such a great part at the end where you know he says like that's our first oval office fight and then yeah. they end up talking about zoe and leaving sort of arm in arm and it's just like, oh, right, this is a really, this is a great marriage. They can sort of have it out and still have that, like, baseline love and respect for each other that you know it's not going to, like, break them to have this kind of a fight. It and makes me think cool. um, about another show that has, I would argue, the only successfully functional marriage that I love, yeah. which is Friday Night Lights. I think that, oh, um, yes. that, that, that the Taylors... Yeah. Um, somehow, I mean, and I guess it, it, Parenthood has it to to a certain extent as well. But uh, and and you know, as Sarah Watson spoke of on a previous episode, um, there is a similarity between Kadams and and Sorkin in terms of um, yeah. the good they see in people. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. The idea yeah. of people being good isn't necessarily bad television. Um, and I right. think that. Um, and I'll come back to that at the end because there's another show I want to talk about in this regard too. But I just think that um, seeing these two duke it out, having their first fight, leaving arm in arm, it's all okay, mm-hmm. is a testament to how solid their marriage is. Like, yes. I don't think that um, at any point Aaron Sorkin or any of the writers want you to question that this marriage is bulletproof. Right. It's not to say that they're not going to have their fights. Right. They will, but they're always going to figure out a way through it. Yes. Um, and that's that's an amazing thing, um, especially yeah. considering what they go through uh, through season two and three specifically. Yeah. Um, it's, it, is, it is really fascinating. Um, at the end of the episode... Uh, Charlie goes to Zoe's dorm room yeah. um, with flowers and some videotapes. Yeah, um, and uh, that's she, also like classic ninety nine. Like we were, we hadn't quite tipped the scales fully to DVDs yet. So he shows videos. up with videos. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's very great. cute. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's there's a great little couplet that I love. Uh, Zoe says, "Are there other things you feel bad about too?" Charlie says, "Yes." Zoe says, "Name them, please." Yeah. Uh, it's it's just it's, it's cute. It's adorable. It's perfectly delivered by by Elizabeth Moss. And, and I love that they're doing it for an audience of Gina who like that's yes. another fascinating thing that like, oh right, Gina just like has a dorm room at, <laughs> yeah, at Georgetown adjacent. that she's just like can be across the hall and see what's that's going great. on at all times. Yeah. It's great. Uh, and then and then uh, she walks down the hall and says, book bag is in, uh, book is in for the in night. Book bag is in for the night, yeah. Uh, it's great. Um, I, uh, I want, the other show I wanted to talk about, which I've been rewatching in preparation for season two, is Ted Lasso. Oh, and sure. And I, 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 I want to bring it up because it, it comes back to what I was just saying in terms of uh, Friday Night Lights, Kadams, um, and, and being good. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that there's this unfortunate sort of, I mean, truthfully, jadedness that we have now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, rewatching Ted Lasso, which has just been absolutely flooring me this tech, second time around, where I'm just like, this show's just 
unreal. Yeah. Um, you know, is people think that it's saccharine. People think that it's too aw shucks, that it's yeah. too sweet. Not this show. The notion of people being good. Yeah. And I think it's why we're so lost. I think it's it's one of the reasons why I feel like we are where we are right now as a country. Yeah. Where like seeing the best in people, striving to be the best version of yourself yeah. should be a no-brainer. And yet it's it's one of those things and and I think you're seeing it more and more where like where a show if a show can pull that off yeah. it feels more and more radical. Um, more miraculous. I think, yeah, well I think I, I uh, another show that's on right now that I'm paying a lot of attention to is The White Lotus, which is Mike White's new show and it a lot of it reminds me of Enlightened, which was a previous HBO show of his. And yes. that one obviously I don't think anybody would ever call that show saccharine, but the thing that was so audacious about that show was the central premise of that show was Laura Dern's character wants to be a good person and the whole struggle is how can I find and hold on to this ideal good person that yeah. is inside of me when the whole rest of the world is trying so hard to push all my buttons and to frustrate me and to to make me sort of stray from that path and it does so in a really kind of smart way but I thought that that was one of the first times where I was just like oh you can make the pursuit of just goodness as its own thing to be a thing that can drive something like a television show. And yeah, I, I that's a really interesting comparison because I do think that um, I mean Mike White stuff is brilliant um, for for a myriad of reasons, but I I do think that sort of deconstruction of of what motivates a person to want to be better. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that Laura Dern is doing it for all the right reasons. She's she's failing in some regards. She's succeeding in others. Uh, and I think that Ted Lasso is another example of that, of yeah. people that are all sort of cloaked in their own versions of quote-unquote failure yeah. um, and and trying to find the best versions of themselves, or at least to find, to 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 surround themselves with people that make them the best versions of themselves. And I, and I think that, um, you know, this comes back to the West Wing because I, I think that, it's 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 easy to say this show is naive and this show is idealistic and the show is yeah. saccharine and it's all these things, um, but first of all, there's a courage in that. Yes. Um, but there's also a courage in 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 seeing the flaws in yourself and wanting to be a better person for it. Yeah. And I think that um, we just need more shows like this. I, I just it's it's more shows like Ted Lasso, more shows that sort of yeah. embrace the 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 brokenness of the human right. condition, right. but but the idea of striving for better. Um, I, I I understand that perhaps there are people that that did not take the last 14, 15, 16 months of their lives uh, as we were all trapped inside <laughs> to right. look inwards and to try to say, like, these are my weaknesses, these are my strengths. I get that. Right. Um, a lot of people, that's too scary and they're just not interested in doing that. Yeah. Um, but I but I really do think that um, that on some level it's television's job through entertainment yeah. to try to get people to look within themselves. I remember when, yeah. when Friday Night Lights um, went off the air, um, Many moons ago, I was hired by Jason Kadams to be his assistant, and I couldn't take the job because of Ugh. my immigration status. Uh, so, yeah, no, it was, a, it was a real watershed moment for me. But um, but I, I had his email address, so I emailed him when yeah. the show was done to tell him how much I loved the finale. And one of the things I said to him is that, you know, that that, that show so beautifully illustrated that idea, right, mm -hmm. of looking at, at people that you that, – that 
teach you about yourself and can hopefully make you into a better person. Yeah. What what more can we strive for? Yeah. And this is a television show trying to show a country, right. trying to literally be like, right. this could be you if you you know listen. Right. <laughs> it's 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 crazy. Yeah. yeah. But, um, one other yeah. thing I wanted to bring up before please, please, we please. Uh, we because yeah. um, Amy Aquino plays Becky Reisman, plays the congresswoman who's going to attach the rider to the bill, mm-hmm. and one of the great sort of character actresses who, even if you don't know her name, you've seen her in something. So like I th- I'm pretty sure the first thing I ever saw her in, she's Melanie Griffith's new assistant at the end of Working Girl, yes. who has that really great scene with her. But like yes. she's she's Sam's mom in Freaks and Geeks. She's mm-hmm. uh, Felicity's counselor on Felicity. She's uh, Dr. Coburn on ER. On ER. She's, uh, I, I did watch a season of Bosch for work, and she's <laughs> definitely on Bosch. <laughs> okay. I just literally was, catch- was catching up on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. She's in that show. Uh, she's <laughs> I saw your tweet about the sound design. Oh, my God. It was driving me crazy. It was driving me crazy. I'm, like, jostling with the remote. Finally, I gave up. And I'm just, like, I'm turning on closed captioning. And that's all there. Because, like, what what can I do? Enough. Enough, yeah. Um, But one of my very favorite character actresses, and this is, again, it's, you know, it's a one-off West Wing episode. We never see Becky Reisman again. But it's a really great scene. And it's one of those things where she projects... Even when her character is being a pain in the ass and being sort of short-sighted and she's... But, like, she projects an intelligence and she... And you... It doesn't take you long to believe that, like, she must have... She has her reasons. And she does have her reasons. She, as a self-interested congresswoman, because of, I would say also, the mistakes that Abby makes by sort of, like, not running this decision to go on television about the child labor thing by anybody, now this congresswoman thinks, oh, I'm the child labor advocate in Congress, I can't let this thing become mm-hmm. a a thing in the public eye without me being at the head of it. So now I've got to do this thing. And yeah, I, I, I totally it, agree with you that like the casting on this show is tremendous. But mm-hmm. roles like this where we have to buy into something in a very short period of time yeah. that has a big ripple effect yeah. has to be done by a person, to your point, of this kind of stature, right? Yeah. Where Sam and her can meet in a gym and she yeah. can be like, so I'm doing this. Right. And as an audience, you have to be like, yeah, no, I mean, I buy it. I don't, I yeah. don't know why, but I right. buy it. But yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Also, Abby mentions about like, we're not on Steve's boat anymore. And like, clearly the implication is that like yes. the, she and Jed and, and Becky and her husband are friends that sort of go way back. And every once in a while, the West Wing will sort of, and obviously the stuff with Ron Ehrlich too, is just like, it makes me, like there's there's a bible out there somewhere that has you know their these characters histories and like clearly and it makes me want to almost like the west wing the college years we're just like it's fascinating to me the idea of like what jed and and abby's uh life would have been like when they were young when they were college age there's another episode i know i bring up amy gardner all the time but like where abby's like i used to babysit for you and it's just like that's fascinating to me that like now they go all the way back and and obviously like Amy and Amy dating Josh's roommate at at uh, Yale Law School or whatever and it's just like yeah I mean I'd I'd pay I'd pay all the money in the world for someone to do uh, that's some sort what, of I would take that over a West Wing continuation revival, or sequel yeah. like West Wing prequel I'm all in on it yeah, like a hundred percent I would yeah. I would I mean even just like him running for governorship right he was the governor of, of, of New, uh, Hampshire. New Hampshire yeah, yeah you know yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, totally. there's 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 something 
yeah, I would watch that. You'd have to recast that. Mrs. Landingham, but and that would be tough to Whatever. like. You, there's so, but there's so much pressure on whoever would have to play that role because like sure. she's so beloved. But I guess there would be pressure on everybody. Um, I, but, I feel like is there? It's funny we say this because this October we're going to get a prequel to The Sopranos yeah. in the form of a movie. Yeah. Um, I I'd watch a prequel movie of The West Wing. Yeah, I definitely. I would. mean, I and, and on some level, I feel like that's almost more palatable or possible yes. for Aaron Sorkin to do. Yes, um, than uh, than well, and it would keep him from doing the thing that he, we most don't want him to do, which is comment on the state yeah. of politics in twenty twenty one. Correct, like that's Correct. what we don't want. And by the way, he would probably embrace it, right? Because all the things yeah. that he wants to say that are politically incorrect or right. don't sound right would be right. Perfect exactly. Yeah, he could just be like, "Well, it's nineteen eighty seven, so like whatever." <laughs> it's like fine sure yeah. okay yeah. yeah no i would i would watch the hell out of that i also i do have one final question for you i yes. know that in our previous episode i asked you what your favorite episodes of the west wing were yes. so my question to you now is what are your or who are your favorite characters on the west wing do you okay. have uh do you I have do. any that that did work for you okay i mean in terms of regular cast because like i've talked about like even lo- deep cuts i'm open to i'm open to I mean, support you know support i love recurring. again i've talked a ton about how much i love amy and <laughs> how much i love uh, abby um, main characters like it can't go wrong with CJ and Toby. Those are like I feel like those are like that's where the show exists for me, and yeah. um, they're the they're oh they're the best. Um, <laughs> yeah, deep cut characters. God, there are so many. We when I was at the Atlantic, we had done mm-hmm. a ranking of like all of them oh, to wow. the point okay. where we got into like what's also it's so funny that. I've done two episodes and Margaret hasn't shown up on either one of them because, like, it's true. God knows I love Margaret, and I mean, let Bartlett be Bartlett's got a big, uh, yes, huge Margaret runner in that one. Oh, is that the one where uh, her the friend muffin. on the President's Council for Physical Fitness, who, uh, uh, yep. Yeah. The recipe for the muffin that yes. fucks up the whole email system. She's the best. God, I love <laughs> Margaret. Um, even in like getting into like later season stuff, like I loved the Janine Garofalo character who they brought yes, on in season yes, seven. I thought same, she was like same. really, really yes. fantastic. Yep. Um, you've done no, that's season two. Larroquette. I was going to say John Larroquette, who Amazing. again, in my memory, for the longest time, I was like John Larroquette had like a six episode run on The West Wing. It's mm-hmm. like no, he's on one episode, but like one he's episode. so fantastic in that one episode. Yeah. As is uh, Oliver Platt's another great. Oh. I mean, Platt has some good scenes with Stalker Channing too. Like they have some like really really fantastic stuff. But yeah, I, I, I would, think yeah, I would I argue think, that the the dictaphone that won't turn off is one of the most classic <laughs> his first things scene ever. His like that's how they introduce the guy. It's great. But yeah, CJ and and Toby, I think, oh. and like that's a very like kind of two sides of a coin thing, right? Where like mm-hmm. she is. She's, you know, again, she's learning on the job. She's sort of on the way up. I think Toby's obviously much grumpier. She is more outwardly. She ends up being the idealism of Sam almost wears better on her. There's the episode where she talks about there's the mad cow scare. And she Mm -hmm. has that thing about how um, and it's a thing that very much resonates in uh, COVID vaccine times where Mm -hmm. she's just like. Uh, information breeds confidence and uh, silence breeds fear and that kind of thing and just like essentially trust the American public with this uh, information and they will you know you'll see uh, the best of them and whether that is true I think that it makes CJ maybe the most idealistic of anybody and I totally agree Toby's a lovable grump 
<laughs> I, you know, it's funny you, um, that you bring that up because in a previous episode, um, which I'm sure you remember, the whole Lowell Lydell situation and the yeah. um, uh, the the Matthew Shepard esque sort of situation that transpires there, and the and and the the relationship with the parents uh, and yeah. all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, in that episode when we were talking about it, and forgive me, I can't remember which one it was, but take out the trash day, right? Yes, I believe you're right. Yes, yeah. and and she gets quite emotional. Yeah. Um, and and I was talking with the guest uh, Carrie Whitmer about sort of this dynamic of that women are allowed to be emotional, right. and Quote unquote, men aren't. Right. But I feel like periodically you'll get Toby, who can get a little choked up. He can get a little bit emotional depending on the circumstances. The most the the the, the largest one being. When uh, his kids are born at the end of season four, they share such a great look in that scene. Too. It's the best, where yeah. she just says, "Toby." She puts and her hand just, on her heart a little oh bit. Oh my yeah, god, it's, it's great. the best. It's yeah. the best. Uh, th- it's just that's the stuff that I feel like that's the goods. And you're right that Toby and CJ share that brain. It's funny that you bring up the Lowell Lydell thing because I think that that was probably a big part of the reason why I kind of imprinted on CJ early because that was such a like kind of ripped from the headlines thing where like the Matthew Shepard yeah. incident was not too long before that happened. I want to say awesome. that was maybe 90, 98 at the latest. It was 98. And then and this happened in 99. And then I was, it took 10 years yeah. for them to pass something. Right. And I, I remember I was obviously 18 years old then and still very closeted. But like that one hit me hard. And I remember like I, I have this very vivid memory of watching um, the funeral that like CNN had like cameras at the funeral with like the yeah. West uh, the the uh, the Fred Phelps uh, people protesting the funeral and sort of having like the God hates fags like signs at the funeral and it, like I really really uh, emotional stuff to watch sort of all by myself right and I remember then when they did that episode of the West Wing and like watching CJ be that emotional I was just like oh okay like somebody else gets it sort of you know and is experiencing that to some degree the way the way it sort of felt for me so i was just like well now cj's on my team you know what i mean like well that's that's the thing yeah that really is sort of i mean that's kind of in the dna of the character which you mentioned earlier and I, i couldn't agree with you more that that's such a hallmark of why we love her yeah. um, she's she's always fighting for the underdog it seems yeah. um, she's all you know even in the woman of Kumar uh, you know an episode that you know some people might think is not particularly delicate or nuanced in the way that it's dealing with things right um, that scene she has with uh, with oh my god why am oh. I drawing a uh, uh, well also Anna Devere Smith like you talk Ed about favorite Smith. characters like yes. that is like Nancy McNally is Nancy top McNally. three for me. Like, she's absolutely so top three for me. She's yeah. one of my absolute favorites. That scene they have together where CJ's like, they're beating the women. Yeah. And Nancy just walks away. Like, there's yeah. just like, I, I, I yeah. don't know what, I, I can't fix it. There's nothing I can yeah. do about it. Yep. Um, I hear you. We're doing, it's it's just, it's, it's great stuff. And she was also the number two choice for CJ Craig uh, was in a diverse. Oh, right, because that because essentially to, it was she those was two. Yeah. She was the press secretary and American president. Yeah, so they were yeah. just like, and yeah, I mean, she, I'm sure she and, would have been great too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, it, yeah. Uh, Nancy McNally is fantastic. Whatever she shows up, especially during the whole uh, kidnapping, is yes. just fantastic. Uh, it's well, her first episode is the first episode of season two, right, where she like walks into the Situation Room and she's got she's coming from a party and she's like, "Can somebody get me a change of clothes? I feel like an idiot here." It's just like it's so great. <laughs> it's fantastic. 
it's all that stuff is great. She's great. Fitz Wallace is also another phenomenal uh, supporting recurring character. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's the bench of this show. This is one of, the, I guess, this is what it's like when you're the Yankees, I guess, you know, or something <laughs> right, to that effect. Right, you know what I yeah. mean? Where it's just like you're just you're the top tier. Everyone's so every, available. To all you. the top te- people are just like, yeah, sure. Where do I? What, what do I need to do? Yeah. I'll do my one episode and take home an Emmy for, right. for guest star or whatever. Although weirdly yeah, enough, you would think that, except that, like for as dominant as the West Wing was in the supporting actor categories at the Emmys. I don't. I think maybe they had one guest actor. Like you would think that oh, they would have dominated the guest actor categories, and they never did. And it was always huh. so baffling to me. That's um, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, the guest actor at that time was all like Law and Order guest stars, and and probably NYPD Blue and stuff like that. But yeah, it was always fascinating to me that like that's where the line that like everybody and the show would win a bunch of Emmys. Martin Sheen never did, and none of the guest stars. It was just like <laughs> that's so strange. I don't know, man. It's it's. It is interesting to see how, especially considering the Emmy nominations that just came out, it does feel like there was a time when the Emmys were actually relatively good about spreading the love. They wanted the Sopranos to take home some big awards. Right. They wanted the West Wing to take home some awards. Now, they expand categories to nominate more people from the same show. It's, I mean, you want to hear me it's talk crazy. for an hour and a half about the Emmys, where I was just like, I love, again, love Ted Lasso. Yeah, sure. All those actors on The Handmaid's Tale are very, very good actors, but we don't need to have characters, uh, categories of eight nominees where half of them are from the same show. It's It's just like, it just sounds like you've only seen five television shows this year. Yeah, it's, it's not great. It's, it's not a great look. Uh, The Crown and Ted Lasso are both two of the best shows on TV. That goes without saying. They're going to win a bunch of awards. Um, And it's not to say that I don't want to see these people recognized. It's just more that like, you know, there's a lot of television out there. There's, there's a lot of so television, television and, and, and I would argue, and I'm very curious as to hear your thoughts on this. I'm assuming we, we think similarly on this, which is the only good thing about awards is the exposure that it can give to things that yeah. might not be seen otherwise. Yes. I don't need to give awards to people that we all recognize as top tier brilliant people in town. Right. Uh, you know, as, as lovely as that might be, I want to give it to the little thing that might not get seen right. otherwise and right. that people go, huh, that's interesting. Which yeah. is why ultimately I would argue that the Academy Awards from last year was a great thing. I love the yes. fact that, that Nomadland won and I love the fact that a bunch of smaller movies won a bunch of awards. That's yeah. fantastic. Right. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's frustrating as hell to see that just not being brought to bear it's it's the conflict between should award shows be a reflection am i watching an award show to have a reflection of my own taste reflected back to me or am i watching an award show to sort of you know to get a sense of what the landscape of television or movies are and it's one of my favorite things for you know i'm crazy into you know movies obviously but like Mm -hmm. i'll still watch you know like the independent spirit awards and be like oh this is a movie i've never heard of like i want to seek this thing out now and and it's why can is so important as well to see a movie like titan which i'm very curious to see it sounds bug nuts but i'm there um but you know it's funny i think there's a third category to what you were saying that is the unfortunate reality which is that i think that these award shows unfortunately are still an attempt at getting ratings so they want big things to get nominated that a lot of people have seen so that they pay attention or watch the award show which again is just like it's all dissonant noise otherwise like what's the point this is why i always say i you know for as conflicted as i am about netflix i long for the day that the oscars uh move to netflix so that they can be five hours long and don't have to worry about ratings 
<laughs> oh, wow, that is a bold. Yeah, I don't know if I, yeah. I don't know if I put it on Netflix, but I put it on a streamer. That's for sure. Something like that, right? Exactly. Something where you don't have to worry about like you know whatever your number is going to be. You know, the next day. That's actually a really, really smart. So if someone was smart, that's what they do. Yeah. If Peacock was smart, they'd be like, "Here's a Brinks truck of money." You know, no commercials. We'll just you know, right? Pay per view. Do, do what whatever. you want to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Bizarre. Um, yeah, uh, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so I mean, much. You it know was, I love it. It was yeah. uh, always a pleasure. Yes. I hope that you'll come back in the future for future television, depending Absolutely. on shows that you've seen or like or what have you. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I just I can't thank you enough for doing this again. It's it's truly it's truly wonderful. Thank you, Phil. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.